Today's interview is with Mark Champagne. Mark unpacks the mental fitness practices and reflective questions shaping the lives of some of the most successful and brilliant thinkers in the world. He is the host of the Top 50 Ranked podcast Behind the Human and co-founded the journaling app Kyo, which is the Japanese word for today, as we'll get into a little bit later, which reached 86.9 million people without a dollar of paid advertising. Mark's first book, Personal Socrates, which I'm holding here in my hand, explores the pointed questions that stimulate our mental fitness and teach us how to direct our internal narrative to work for us instead of against us. He unpacks the prompts and mental fitness practices of legends such as Kobe Bryant, Maya Angelou, Robin Williams, James Clear, Coco Chanel, Stephen Hawking, and many other brilliant minds to bring clarity, intentionality, and possibility to your life. In today's interview of subject matter, or on subject matter rather, we unpack the art and science of asking great questions and how they can give us the gift of a pause on life's furious hamster wheel. We talk about why it's sometimes better to read one paragraph really thoroughly than to try and complete 10 books as a vanity metric. And finally, we learn the techniques that one lady uses to make a team of a thousand people feel seen, heard, and valued completely remotely. This was a great way to start our new season, packed with reflective insights to help you think better, and I hope you enjoy. Mark, welcome to the very first episode of Subject Matter Season 5. It is a pleasure to have you here. Season 5. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, Ben, for having me on the show. 100%. So we are here to talk about you. We're here to talk about your new book, Personal Socrates, which I love and I have a lot of questions about. My first question is something that I don't think I can ask many authors, which is actually about the design of the book itself. So this book, when I when I picked it up and I touch it, this is something that's so good, it has come close to being a pillow to use at night. It is so satisfying to pick up, to use, and the book itself is designed for productivity. So I was wondering if we could start today by you sharing a little bit with our audience on how the book itself is designed for productivity and how aspiring writers can think about the ergonomics of books. There actually was a lot of time and effort and a lot of discussion put into the actual product of the book. The reason the book is designed the way it is, first of all, it's the publisher is new to the space of publishing, but has been around for the last eight or so years producing really nice quality notebooks and guided journals. And I mean, the idea when chatting with them was just to have something that feels different that provides this overall experience and makes your reflection something that you also look forward to from every angle. The big one for me was, if I'm gonna write something that encourages people to pause and slow down and write in the margin and write in the, you know, the open spaces, the, the last thing I want is the book flipping, flopping and closing all over the place. So you know, this one, for example, lays flat no matter where you're at in the book. There's small little nuances like how many pages are left in the profile, for example, which you would expect on your Kindle, for example, right? So they're just, they're small little things like a little attention to detail and the, the pages are a bit thicker than normal. Again, replicating what more of a notebook feel because this essentially, I mean, for me, 
if I were to pick up someone else's copy of Personal Socrates, there's nothing that would put a bigger smile on my face than seeing it all written and highlighted and answers to some of the questions and the bookmarks sticking out. Like the, the product is used. Like that's the intention with what I wrote. And, you know, I hope that, that people receive it in that way. So there's an interesting insight there in how we design information and the way that it's going to be consumed. So a fictional book, for example, you might want to have as something that you curl up on the sofa with and you use to wind down. Personal Socrates is not that book. This is a book that's designed to make you think and it's designed to be a tool to help with the thinking. And so if you're an aspiring author and you're writing or you're creating other kinds of content like a podcast, being very clear on the intention behind the information that you're creating, I think lets us pull out these really, these very subtle details, like as Mark mentioned, like it literally says three pages left at the bottom here, like you're on a Kindle, like I can just very quickly sift through the information. It's it's very efficient. One of the big themes that came out of this and the tool, if you like, that this is helping with is this phrase that I have heard Mark speak about a lot, which is mental fitness. And when I talk about health and fitness, for me personally, I imagine a lot of people and myself included think about being physically fit with your body, sure. being, being in shape. But you talk about mental fitness as the precursor to that. Can you talk a little bit about why that comes before physical fitness in your mind? Well, the simple answer is your mind's making the decision whether or not you're going to wake up and do your physical exercise. So you know, for me, you know, and I use questions often to do this, but I like to get to the source of the issue or the source of whatever we're trying to solve. And if that's to get healthier, to eat in a more nutritious manner, to show up more fully for our relationships, all those things, all those actions that we'll take or the reactions that we might have in, in those the various scenarios are dictated by how our mind is operating. So for me, the mental fitness, you know, it has to start there so that we're clear and like you said, intentional with how we're acting day in and day out and then making the decisions that are fueling the person we want to be or that are fueling the objectives that we want to see within our business and our businesses and our teams. But it's hard and not pleasant to operate from a standpoint of being mentally fogged or to have fear and uncertainty really overriding our, our internal narratives, it makes it nearly impossible to see the clear steps forward. That's why, you know, it really does not matter what job you're in, what you're doing in life. Spending even a few minutes every day on your mental fitness just goes miles and miles for how A, you're going to feel, but also how you're going to perform and how people around you are going to feel when you're you're doing your work. I think you you shared something very interesting there which is that the fear and the uncertainty we have actually clouds the narrative that we need to move forward. There's a big implication there which is that mental fitness is not just supporting the ability to make better decisions, it's supporting our identity and who we are. I think that's a it's a great segue to talk a little bit more about the origins of personal Socrates and to understand 
what the moment was that inspired you and the identity you have to write the book. And given that this is a book all about questions, were there any questions that you asked that helped you realize that writing this book is what you needed to do? The very quick backstory is that I spent about a decade in the corporate world in various positions, sales analytics, and at the, at the very end, uh, a good amount of time in product and brand management. And, you know, working on teams, crafting strategies on, I was in the healthcare space, so working on pretty massive brands, $100 million budgets and, and so forth. So there, there was a lot going on, let's say, a lot of decisions to be made, many people involved in the teams and so forth. And, you know, throughout that career, I had developed early on this ritual of getting up a little bit earlier than I think most of at least my colleagues or that I was used to at the beginning. And I started reading and the objective was reading positive content and consuming knowledge that I could then reflect on. And it quickly became apparent that no matter who I was reading or reading about or studying, and then eventually when podcasts came onto the circuit, the people that were being interviewed, 100% of them had some sort of reflective practice, meaning they were taking time to be still and think. And usually there were questions around that thought process or questions that were guiding the thought process. So I was picking that up. I'd be writing down those prompts and then the next morning when I would sit down for my mental fitness, I would then write about or reflect on those prompts based on where I was at in my life. And I did that for years. And, you know, I, I really credit that practice of, of reflective writing or journaling as just a catalyst in my work performance and also just handling the regular stresses of life and, and work. Where the story kind of turns is that eventually I got to the point where I grew personally frustrated with the digital solutions that were available at the time for practice like journaling. There was really nothing out there that was helping people and myself take those prompts and then guide a reflection and then have that all in one nice space. There were apps out there that had, essentially there were like word processors, but there was no integration with prompts. So I set out to create one of the first apps to do that. And my brother-in-law, who was also the co-founder, we started working on an app. It was called Kyo, which was the Japanese word for today, really trying to help people slow down each day and, and harness the present moment and think more clearly and, and perform at, a, at higher levels. And long story short, we did really well in terms of reaching 86.9 million people at one point through the app store even though there were many people coming into the app, there were just as many people coming out of the app as well. And our business model needed more time to evolve and we needed more time to iterate the actual product to get it to a little bit more of a predictable state and understand, okay, you know what? If we do these marketing pushes or this number of people comes in, we can somewhat predict what that would turn into in terms of the uh, you know a stable revenue. And we just weren't there. We weren't there and we were running out of money. We were running out of mental capacity as well. We were at a point where I was starting to feel a little bit hypocritical. Like, you know, I'm not following what I'm preaching in this app essentially, right? Or the people that I'm interviewing on the podcast because I'm, I'm so fogged with trying to keep this thing running. 
So eventually we decided it felt right to actually shut the business down. And that was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make in combination with the team, but for me personally to take that on as well, and then not know what to do next. Because that journey of being in mental fitness and preventative health and performance and whatnot felt so right. The most aligned I've ever felt in any of my work. And I actually quite enjoyed my previous job. There wasn't one of those scenarios where I dreaded going into work every day, but this felt different. Like this felt like this was the stuff that I need to be doing. But I just deleted the vehicle that was allowing me to explore that world. It was a deletion of a business and an app, but it, it deleted my identity for that last three years of, of working on it day in and day out and having all these you know hopes and dreams of helping so many people around the world with the product. And now it was gone. I would say it's probably the closest I've ever been to a depression, if not in a depression, because it just, I lost the hope, right? I was filled with fear and uncertainty, kind of how we opened the conversation. And I wasn't thinking clearly until I did everything possible to be in the present moment and deploy gratitude practices. Because I, I knew that that stuff works. I had interviewed hundreds of people around the world about this stuff. And I had to figure out a way to cut the mental narrative. And then that's when, you know, I was able to get clear enough to, to start asking more progressive questions. And the one that, that changed my life and just to answer your question directly was, what do I want for my life? Which led to a plan and then more questions and a question after that. And that's how I got to essentially the book and staying in this space was was really pausing that narrative so I wasn't going down and digging the hole deeper and deeper was allowed the the opportunity to see a different path. I really uh, do ascribe to this idea that it's way more important to choose the right game to play than deciding how hard you play the game or how hard you work. And if you'd kept going down the path of Keo, for example, you would be iterating, there would be the sleepless nights that come with a startup, you would have the pressure to make everything work. And who knows if that would have succeeded. But the, the fact is, you would have kept going down that path. And there has to come a time when we ask ourselves a series of questions. Is this really the right game for me to be playing? Because one very small shift in that can really change the trajectory. It's important to keep in mind that these, when we talk about these kind of questions, and when I hear you sharing, what do I want? This wasn't a silver bullet in that you ask this once and then you know what it is and then you're off on this path. <laughs> this is the process of months in the pressure cooker and probably dozens, if not hundreds of times of asking yourself this question and refining the answer something to underscore is that these are not questions that you tick off and they're not a checklist. They're questions that you return to again and again and again to refine. Yeah. And what do I want is, is a simple but powerful highlight of that where you can ask yourself that dozens of times and keep shaping this more high resolution answer that allows you to find the game that you really want to play. You know, we're all one question away from a completely different life as well as business outcome. The question that will relate to you or your team, it differs over time. I mean, 
what do I want for my life? That's the question I needed at that moment. The question right before that, which you you alluded to, it makes me think of a prompt in the book, which is, am I climbing the right mountain? That question was important when deciding whether to continue or not with Keo. I was in the right mountain range, but I didn't feel that particular mountain was the right one to be climbing. And I'm still in that zone, but I feel very aligned in terms of, of where I'm at now and the projects I'm working on that I am climbing the right mountain. So that was a really critical prompt and, and reflection at that time that evolved into something else to really get the most out of it. I would say dive into the knowledge and make it applicable. Any type of practice or any type of of reading that you're doing, right? I mean, instead of checking off that you've read 10 books in the month, maybe read one, but really apply that one paragraph. That's where the quality comes in. And that's where you actually get the benefit versus, you know, just plowing through a a quantity game, for example. Now, let's get into the the fundamental element of the book you've written, which is asking questions. I'm reading the, the back cover and it says at any point, as you alluded to earlier, we are one question away from a different life. That is a pretty tantalizing, if dare I say, lofty aspiration, sir. So what I would love to understand, and I'm sure a lot of people are curious about, is the nature of some of these questions that can change our lives. So could you maybe break down the anatomy or what goes into a great question? In my opinion, a great question leads to other questions and other thought and stimulates thinking that would not be there had you not asked the question. To me, that's the definition of a great question. An even better question is a well-timed question, because again, it has to be relevant to where you're at, for example. You know, another question that was really paramount in the in the Keo journey at the end was, was something left by, uh, he's now the VP of Adobe, Adobe product, but Scott Belsky, at the time he had founded Behance, the designer platform and still operates today. And, you know, a simple question of why am I building this? As a reminder, right, that as you're building products and services and teams and all of that, to not lose sight of why you're building it in the first place. And has that evolved? Are, are you far off the track on what your customers and users want? In our case, we first built the app from, to solve my problem, which worked. But we waited way too long to actually have in-depth conversations with our users, which uncovered more data, more insight, right? Now you get to that clarity piece that I'm talking about. Like you, you can't skip the clarity piece and move on to doing or performing actions or, or running plans that have an intention if they're not serving the elements that you're bringing up during that clarity-seeking time in the, in the whole process. So... This is where, for me, the questions or the power of a question afford us a pause. Because without the pause, we're on autopilot. We're all on the treadmill. We just keep going. You know, we're, we're the next meeting or the next thought or the next life event. And we're not pausing. We're not thinking. It's sad to say, but we don't really think anymore. We're so focused on being productive and getting out the most amount of results possible But in doing so, we've eliminated the thought process in a lot of this stuff. 
I was thinking about when I was writing the profile on Marcus Aurelius, you know, thousands of years ago, his book, Meditations, essentially his, his journal, you, you can see it there. I mean, the, he was going through and struggling with a lot of the same type of things that we still think about today. But he was taking the time as the leader of Rome or the emperor of Rome in, in probably some of the most harsh climates you can even imagine to slow down and think and make sound decisions. So there's a lot I think that we can, I know I've learned from from these leaders of the past and the commonality, like I said earlier, they all take time to slow down and think because we've got this incredible thing on, on top of our shoulders and in between our two ears, it's, it's our mind. And if, if we let it do its job and quiet all of the emotion that you know we don't need or the relationships are no longer serving us and all the, the internal narratives running, we have all the answers to the questions that we're asking. We just got to let, let our mind connect the dots. Wow. Well said. Uh, it does make me very thankful for the incredible piece of hardware or wetware that I have uh, I have knocking around up here. It reminds <laughs> me of something that a previous guest actually shared, Helene Knapp shared last season, which is that uh, sometimes we have to slow down to speed up. Yeah. And some of the science behind this is we have this thing in our brains called feed forward processing because we don't process everything in high resolution. Otherwise it would be exhausting. So we naturally, if we're reading a passage, for example, and I'm reading something that I've read before, I might skip through this passage on Chip Conley, for example. I'm just kind of rattling through it. And it's only when there's something that really stands out to me that I then slow down. And so I, I think it's very easy. And this is kind of the peril of the internet, or one of them is that we have such an abundance of sources that we're really kind of primed on consuming quickly and efficient and being productive that we miss some of the nuance that happens when we slow down. That to me really seems like the art of a great question is having these prompts that invite us to put the brakes on our own life so that we can decide if we're moving in the direction we want to move or if we're becoming the people that we want to become. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's you mentioned this at the very beginning of the, the conversation. This is where you can jump back into the same question and review it, right? As those are life check-ins, you know, is how I like to, to view them because our lives evolve and so do the questions in our lives, right? So that that one question may pause, you know, hit the brakes and allow you to reflect, but then send you down a different path or different direction and, and provide, the, you know, more clarity to what's next for you. A question I use often, almost on a daily basis, especially when there are decisions to be made or opportunities that are coming up and, and challenges to navigate, with, is just simply, what am I hearing? What's my intuition telling me? You know, and I list all the stuff out or, or I'll mind map it. Everything's here, but where do I really need to go? What makes the most sense? And then you can start linking, obviously, the answers to other questions, right? Well, if, if this is what I want for my life, then these three things link well to that objective and these others don't. And now, you know, you're removing all the decision fatigue there and all the mental capacity that, you know, you might stew on for days or if not weeks to come, right? It's in the back of your mind. Like that is the worst type of mental tension, in my opinion, is the one that just lingers in the back. 
like a relationship that may be bothering you that someone said something and you, you keep thinking about it versus taking time either to process it for yourself, to speak with them or let that relationship go. But again, taking that time to slow down and realize A, it's bothering you and B, okay, well, what can I do? You know, what's within my control in this situation that I can rectify it and release it so that it's not churning away at your mental capacity? Because that's taking away from every other aspect of your life. So let's jump into some of the questions that are actually in the book. And I've highlighted a couple that jump out to me that I'd love to talk through. So the first one is from a lady who was around in the 18th and early 19th century, and her works continue to be studied 200 years later. This is Jane Austen. And Jane's question is, who are the characters of my internal empire? I thought this was especially juicy and potentially a tool <laughs> that we can use to to understand ourselves better. Could you explain this question for us, please? Yeah, thank you. You know, we all know that to make a good story and to form a really juicy plot, as you said, require a number of characters. There isn't one that's bad, one that isn't in the sense that they all have to you know, work together in, in terms of the, the narrative to form something that's interesting. Well, our lives are no different. Who are the characters in our internal empire in terms of the emotions, right? If you think of your emotions and fear or excitement or motivation and, and drive and whatnot, and understanding who those characters are and w what has shaped the story so far, then you have the luxury to shape the next chapter versus just letting those characters bulldoze over any intention on your side and just, again, go into the autopilot of things. And that's what that profile is designed to do is to, to pause, identify what's happening, how we got to where we're at, and then take some ownership and intention and, and set intention, I should say, to where we want to go, how we want that to look, and, and who can help be a part of that journey. I'd also build on this to say that some of the, the characters we have inside of us they're not necessarily just the emotions, but they're also previous versions of ourself. Oh, yeah. So looking at Jane's question of the characters of my internal empire, one of those characters is seven-year-old Ben when I went through a traumatic illness. Another character is 13-year-old Ben starting my secondary school. Another is 19-year-old Ben going to university. And they all want slightly different things. You know, they're at slightly different parts of their, of their life. And I think understanding what they would like and their preferences, as you say, allows for more, more control because we, we fear what we don't understand. And when we're able to understand the disorder that we, we have, then we're able to create order out of the chaos rather than let it, as you say, like steamroller past us. What you're mentioning here actually links really well to a profile that I wrote on Picasso because to create a lifetime of legendary work. In his case, all of his paintings and his sculptures and his drawings and whatnot. If you really study his work, there was a Picasso in the blue phase. There was a Picasso in the rose phase. There was the drawings. One era of your life, so the seven-year-old Ben era of your life, doesn't make up your whole story. It's a chapter, right? 
just like Picasso had the blue phase of his painting. And, and there's actually links to that color profile for him. He was, uh, it seems like he was in a depressed state. Uh, he had lost uh, his best friend and whatnot. And then when he met, I think when he met his wife or new girlfriend, all of a sudden, and he was becoming more and more happy, he flipped into this rose-colored state. And you can see it. Mm. I mean, you when you zoom out, you can see it, the whole body of work versus just being, you know, very narrow focused on, oh, it's this one thing. Wow. And there's a quote here you've got, which I think puts a pin in this really nicely, which is from Picasso, where he says, colors like features follow the changes of the emotions. So exactly as you're saying there, like the, the shift in his his paintings was was catalyzed by by his experience. Yeah. So let's dig into another question. There is a lady called Claude Silver, and Claude has this question, which is, how can I hold space for others? Can you explain this concept of holding space and how we can apply it in a remote first world? I mean, to start, so Claude Silver currently is the chief heart officer at VaynerMedia. She is responsible from an employee health, safety, and development standpoint of about a thousand people. And the message in the profile, and I think the message for all of us is that to hold space for others, you first have to hold space for yourself. Because to truly show up and be present for someone on the other side, whether you're in human resources or not, or whether you're a manager or leading a team, I mean, it's all the same. You, you have to be present. And it's hard to be present if you've got a whole bunch of stuff circulating in your own mind. So it starts with us individually, again, prioritizing our mental fitness and our mental health to be clear and focused and intentional with, with how we show up. Because then we can be present in that interaction. It's like we trick ourselves when it comes to remote meetings or Zooms and things like that, that we can pretend like we're present, but we're not. But people know. I mean, we're, we're smart humans. We, you know when someone is not actually on the line and they're crushing emails or replying to other messages on Slack or whatever it is. It all comes back to this consistent training because you're training your mind to be present and to listen and to be there for the person on the other side. And Claude has just, re- she's got really good, you know, little tactics for this to just, you know, pay attention to the person's eye color or some of the other personal characteristics and be there with the person. And in her case, you know, sometimes she's having conversations that are emotionally charged or the person on the other side might be struggling with something. It's just as important to make sure that you don't take on that emotional reaction. You know, be there, be there, listen, help, offer whatever you can. That's the idea of the holding space or being the container for that person at that time. But when they leave, they exit the Zoom call, take a couple minutes to just let that go, you know, breathe that out, do the things that you know, will, you know, put a smile on your face, take a walk, like whatever it is, it's, it's personal to us. That takes minutes. But those minutes of that intentional practice can save days and years of, of, of emotional buildup that eventually will take us down. Being able to ground into it and then ground out of it, I think is the really, the other interesting piece of this because our brains, the way that our memory works is we, we have, or we're governed by something called the peak end rule. Hmm. So the peak end rule is very simply that 
our memories will remember the peak of an experience. So the emotional climax, if you will. And we remember the end when we said goodbye. So you have to, at the end of these calls, when you're speaking to people, really think about that exit, really think about that final touch point, the feeling that you're going to leave them with, because that's what's going to stick with people as well. Yeah. I mean, curiosity breeds presence and people do feel the presence, right? They feel the emotional reaction that you're showing up with, the energy that you leave, right? That's what you remember. True. Yeah. And uh, Claude, you actually write in the book, Claude's inspired by Maya Angelou. People won't remember what you say or what you think, but they'll remember how you made them feel, which is exactly as we're coming to here. So to conclude, Mark, this has been a wonderful interview and I've really, really enjoyed exploring the art and science of questions. I thought we could leave this on a practical note and come back to the man who this book is named after, Socrates. <laughs> Socrates has a quote, which is, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think this book certainly, there's certainly a lot of parallels between that. And my question for you is, given this Socratic focus on self-examination, if there's someone who is inspired to take their level of self-awareness or their level of mental fitness seriously and start understanding themselves better, what questions would you recommend they start with? Or what does a roadmap look like to begin this process of understanding ourselves better for someone who's totally new to it? Well, I think the easiest place to start is to get a baseline of where your mind's at right now and where you'd like it to be. You know, a question like, how do I feel? physically and and mentally like where's my mind at right now do i feel scattered do i feel a lack of motivation on most days am i irritable do i react instead of respond to situations you know just doing a bit of an audit maybe the last few days or the last few weeks to understand okay well this so this is my baseline not to hold judgment towards yourself but just state the facts and then ask the, the follow-up question of where do I want my mind to be and state that goalpost or state that objective of where you're heading. So as you ask and get clear with those questions and then start understanding, well, what are some things I can do each day that I know for 100% certainty will put a smile on my face and that'll be different for all of us. There might be some exercise there. There might be some learning, some reflection whatever your mix is, and making sure that those practices and those tasks or those activities are consistently injected into your days, then you start building those muscles, those mental fitness muscles, so that when the next time you have a conversation that's charged and that normally would force you to react, you've gifted yourself the luxury of the pause. And it's just microseconds, but now you have a pause to make a different decision. You have a pause to not let that situation dwell on your mind for the rest of the day and ruin the rest of your day or days or weeks or whatever the case is. And the more you do this stuff, the more you're exposed to other practices and whatnot. And the more self-aware you become, the more clear your thinking becomes and the better you feel. And here's the kicker. Everyone around you feels better too. It's infectious. There's a ripple effect to all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. 
These are all little micro mental fitness practices that continually keep your mind in this motivated and positive state that have all these ripple effects for ourselves and others. And it happens that we perform at our best when we're in these states. That's a great synthesis of what a question can do and the overwhelming learning that I am taking away from this interview is that questions are there to help us pause at the moments when it matters. Without questions, we assume that we have the answers and we're heading down this single path or this treadmill and we may not stop for years without them, but taking the time to ask, what do I want? Where am I going? Where do I want my mind to be? Where do I want my life to be? What's important to me? These questions hit the brakes yeah. and they can hit the brakes in a violent way if we are forced to confront them, or they can hit the brakes in a very mindful way when we actively bring them up, if we are consistently practicing our, our mental fitness. So I do want to underscore as a final thought that this is this is a habit. These questions are not to-do lists. They are tools, and they're tools to sharpen thinking that is never finished. So, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sharing some of your insights with our audience today. If anyone listening wants to keep up with you, they want to learn more about your ideas, where is the best places to find you online and follow your journey? Yes. So th thank you again. I mean, we could obviously speak for hours, I think, on, the, on these topics. So I appreciate your time and energy to the conversation. I'm excited and I'm wishing you nothing but awesome for the season to come. Thanks again for letting me kick it off. Uh, and the easiest place for people to find me is just behindthehuman.com. The book links are there, the podcasts uh, there. If you're a corporate team uh, or a leader and you want any type of speaking or training, it's all there as well. My main thing is just mental fitness and being a mental fitness strategist to really try to customize practices like this to, to help personally and professionally. I mean, we all have access to these practices and it's it's a beautiful loop once you get involved with it because it's it's a loop that just keeps giving. Fantastic. Mark, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and want more insights to help you get ahead personally and professionally, make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with our latest content. It makes a big difference in helping our content get discovered, and so I'd really appreciate it too. If you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, I'd love to hear them. You can drop us a comment on YouTube or message me directly on Twitter. My handle is at benbradbury underscore. I'll see you next time.